Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and as a part of Can We Awareness Week, Dr. Donna Radadick and I are hosting a very special interview. As most of you know, Dr. Donna Radadick is CanWe's co-founder. She's also a board-certified nutritionist and has taught nutrition and integrative medicine at University of Tennessee's College of Veterinary Medicine. Our very special guest is Dr. Sheila Robertson. She's a veterinarian and a PhD. She's also board certified in anesthesia and animal welfare in both Europe and the US. And she's also an animal acupuncturist, which we love. Donna and I are also both acupuncturists. She completed postgraduate training in shelter medicine and teaches at several veterinary schools in Canada and in the US. She's passionately involved in animal welfare issues with the AVMA and is also senior medical director at Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, which is a large network of veterinarians that provide in-home euthanasia around the U.S. It's a great organization. So clearly, Dr. Sheila, you're all about creating and maintaining quality of life until the very end, which has really inspired us to want to chat with you this morning. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. And you're, you're right now you're in Scotland working. Yes, well, I'm actually home because oh. I'm actually, um, I was, I grew up in Scotland, so I'm actually home visiting my family. Nice, so, yeah. nice, very good. Well, you do a lot, and we do a lot with both dogs and cats, but right now we're talking about cats and we're kind of focusing on cats this week because it feels to me, and I think Donna would agree, that sometimes cats get the short end of the stick, not only when it comes to research, but when it comes to um, even pet parents providing veterinary care to kitties. So we also know kitties are masters at hiding disease. So you've done a lot of research when it comes to cats and pain management. Can you talk to us a little bit about, as pet owners, what can we be looking for when it comes to knowing if our kitty is in pain or knowing when something's wrong enough that we would want to make an appointment with a veterinarian? Kitties are little mysteries. <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, <laughs> I swore after my first research project with cats, I was done. And then I was so fascinated, I just kept working with cats. Um, so there's a big difference between acute pain and um, long-term or chronic pain. So what we're learning now is that basically the owners are usually the best people to know that something's wrong because they know their cat best. And so most of it is going to be changes in behavior. So if there's a sudden, you know, in really acute type of pain, like, you know, maybe they, they have, um, you know, pancreatitis or a GI obstruction, something that's quite acute, then what we're finding is that from looking at lots of videos of normal cats and cats with acute pain, we're seeing that it's all about behavior and very much um, based around their facial expression and their posture. So, uh, a cat that has belly pain will hunch itself up. It'll be very hunched, its head will be down, um, it'll look very uncomfortable. So that would, you'd know something's wrong in the, in, the, in the abdomen, in the belly. And then the other thing that we're learning, it, and it's across all species, and actually Darwin was the first to point it out in apes and actually mentioned cats and humans, that the, there's a basic across all species change in facial expression with pain, because pain is an emotion, and every species, even the ones that are predated, like mice, rabbits, hide things very well. The one thing that they can't, because it's hardwired and it's not learned, they cannot hide um, their facial expression when they're in pain. And so to expand on that, if you'd like, because I think it's fascinating, mm. you know yourself if you're uncomfortable or painful 
you grimace. And that's what we call it. It's the grimace um, score. So cats that are uncomfortable, they will clench their mouth. What that does is they, they loop tense around their muzzle and their whiskers move direction. Normally they're kind of like hanging down and to the front, but if they get pulled back and more horizontal and you can see the tension in their face. And then the other thing they tend to do is kind of half shut their eyes and then the change in all those muscles will pull their ears down. So their ear position, how tight around their eye they look, and then this tension in their muzzle and their whiskers can give away a lot of clues about what's going on, especially with acute pain. That's not only, of course, fascinating, but so important for yep. not only veterinarians to teach their clients, but I think that to, to begin having a conversation around because it's these nonverbal cues that we need to really be paying attention to that many that uh, that necessarily we don't know about as pet parents and that veterinarians aren't necessarily talking to owners about as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, they, they always talk about, well, you know, how difficult it is to assess pain in non-lingual species. And so, they, you know, they're talking about, you know, newborn babies and, you know, cognitively impaired adult humans and, and so on. That's a real issue. But it, it's not that cats don't have a language. It's just it's not our language. So I think as veterinarians, it's our duty to learn what they're trying to tell us or what they're showing. So we need to interpret, you know, their language. And so the face is very important. And there's, um, you know, quite a lot of research coming out about the grimace scale in cats now and the pain face. And there's been a couple of publications. And um, mostly it's about acute pain. But I think that we will begin to, we're, there's a study going on in Montreal right now looking at the facial expression of cats that have pain in their mouth. And we know that dental and mouth pain, you know, from stomatitis and inflammation in the mouth is very common in cats. And so they're doing a project looking at what happens to the facial expression of cats when they have a sore mouth. I think that's the other thing that's really interesting to point out, what you're saying is that we as veterinarians need to listen to owners, that mm -hmm. the owners may not under, you know, be aware of the research that you're stating, but they know what their cat's face looks like. You know, they may yes. not be able to say ear posture, whiskers are this way, but my cat's face, my cat's posture, my cat's behavior, something's not right. And, you know, so many owners will say that to us and we do lab work, we do everything, we find nothing and we want to dismiss that. And I think what you're saying is we need to start listening to our owners that they really do need do need and understand their cat's behavior when it isn't normal. Yeah, and I think the, the one thing that has helped me tremendously with helping pet owners with um, cats is that understandably cats, when and we'll be, we're probably going to talk about this, when they come to a clinic, they're pretty stressed or can be stressed. And so often, you know, they actually because of the stress hormones and everything that happens that actually, um, you know, can actually cover up the pain because you're in that, you know, like scary situation. But the other thing is, you know, a cat isn't going to just get out of its cage and walk around and act normally. So the thing that I have found to be unbelievably helpful is if owners would quickly snap, you know, nearly everybody has a smartphone, they can snap a quick video of the cat walking because, you know, how they walk when they have arthritis is different take a quick, if they really think something's different, take a quick snap of the of their face, 
quick video, you know, going up steps, climbing into litter box, because that's something that we can never reproduce in our clinic on an exam room table. And that has helped me, you know, dive, figure out what's going on um, tremendously. That's fantastic advice. And, and that's actually really brilliant. Even when pet parents are trying to discern if they need to come to the veterinarian, taking a small video, sending it over, um, you know, to the vet tech, uh, just so that the staff can review it. It's really a great way of checking in and making sure that maybe they're not missing something that, that requires a visit. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think what I've, even with my own, and I've had a lot of cats, <laughs> um, with my own cats, what, when they were, you know, getting older and all the comorbidities and mobility issues, what I used to do was record a quick little video clip and date it and put it in their own little folder so I could compare it, you know, if we, you know, had made progress with my treatment or we were going backwards and, you know, it, it just helps you, you know, plot the progress either good or bad, it helps you um, look back at things. You know, Donna, are you, do, do you do that, Donna, uh, when, with cases that you see as well? Do you, do you do video documentation? I've probably done that more with dogs, and, but I do. I have a couple of clients who have been very, um, you know, cat-savvy clients who have sent me and, you know, cats with different postures or, you know, different... Um, you know, just the way they're, again, facial features and things like that. And um, it is, it's extremely useful. A lot of times I'm consulting with um, clients over the phone. So I'm not even in an exam room with the cat. So a lot of times when I am, I'm getting, you know, videos or I'm getting pictures and things like that. And uh, it is extremely useful because, it's, you know, sometimes too, like words like grimace, they may not say grimace, they may say they seem tight or they're more tense or, you know, it's just, again, we're so, so verbal. We're such a verbal trying to give each other information and our, you know, our dogs and cats are talking to us all the time, but it's just not verbal. It's body language. And, and I think that's a wonderful, wonderful idea. And I also love the idea of trending. You know, how, how can you evaluate a cat with osteoarthritis? You implement a plan, you know, a weight loss plan or pain management plan or acupuncture, and then the cat goes home. How do we know that cat is responding? And that would be like you're saying, if you, you know, see how the cat is moving initially, how maybe it's jumping up in its favorite position or how it's laying, and then, you know, recording going forward with each treatment to see if, you know, are we saying better or worse? Yep. And I so, mean, like, what is, what is the expression? A, a picture is worth a thousand words? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> especially it. when it comes to kitties. <laughs> yep. So, Sheila, when it comes to cats going to the hospital, especially if it's not a feline only, if it's not feline specific, if the cat's going in, if the kitty's sick or not feeling well, going into a general practice, that's incredibly stressful for a cat. Um, yes. And so this whole concept of, of creating a, a feline-friendly hospital or feline-friendly environment is, of course, the goal. But what are some things that, that veterinarians and clients need to be doing to help minimize stress for that veterinary visit? Yeah. So obviously in an emergency situation, the owner can't really prepare right. for that. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's a planned visit, then you know, and they've seen the veterinarian and then they're, they say the cat was seen and it's like, we okay, so next week your cat's coming back and we're doing a dental procedure. That would be the perfect scenario. 
where you can start um, helping the cat before it even leaves home. Because for me, when, you know, I'm trained in anesthesia and everyone, you know, usually focuses on, you know, what drugs are we going to use? And I'm like, uh-uh, no, anesthesia starts at home. And people are like, what? <laughs> so for me, it would be like that cat that's coming back next week would have been sent home with um, facial pheromone, either sprays or wipes to treat the carrier. Um, and obviously the owner can do that quite easily. Um, 30 minutes before they travel, they can treat, spray or wipe down the carrier in time to let the, um, you know, evaporate and be good. Um, I think it's always good to leave cat carriers out in the house all the time. And I put treats in my cat's carriers and their favorite blanket. So that it's not like, oh, the cat carriers out of the closet and they run a mile. And then the other thing that has really changed um, life for a lot of cats, but for us, is that the cats are being um, prescribed um, gabapentin, um, you know, the night before the visit or the morning before the visit with a little bit of tasty food. And then they arrive, you know, pretty calm, much calmer with more normal, you know, very, like the heart rate's more normal. You can actually do a better physical exam, which is, makes things safer for going to anesthesia. So gabapentin is something that I think everybody has, is starting to embrace. But obviously that's only when you can plan the whole, you know, episode. But even if you can't plan that, what I started doing at the last, uh, when I was at Michigan State, uh, at a big, you know, university hospital, which was, you know, dogs, cats, and anything coming through the door, is the minute the cats arrived, we actually had um, black, uh, towels that had been pre-treated with facial pheromones, and the owners were asked to take the cat, you know, to a separate waiting area and cover it with that towel um, and put the cat up on a high surface. But our main goal was to get that cat from checking in straight to a consulting room as fast as possible and try and save one of the consulting rooms only for cats. And then that consulting room also had the pheromone plugins and, you know, the soft table and, you know, and the nice you know, pheromone treated equipment in there. Great. That's great advice for veterinarians and for owners. If the veterinarian isn't cognizant of that, it's really, that's a way that the pet parent and veterinarian can work together to minimize stress for the patient. Really important. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing you can do is walk into a clinic and lay the cat carrier on the floor. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, there should always be a shelf or something. And plus, and just, you know, it's easy to hang up the towels in the morning and spray them, let them air out, then fold them up. We used to keep them in a plastic tote. And when we saw a cat, car you know, a cat carrier coming, it was like, here, here's a towel, put your cat up here, cover it. And we'll try and get you into the waiting room, into the clinical, you know, area, um, to the consulting room as fast as possible. Yeah, great advice. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Robertson, you're going to be speaking, or you do speak a lot about um, uh, older cats or aging cats, and you know, what do you? What do you consider, and I, I get asked this question, and we all get asked this question, what's an old cat? You know, what, what is, what's the magic number for an old cat? How, how, do you, what, how do you answer that? What do you consider an older cat? Well, certainly in the year and a half that I've been with Lap of Love, um, obviously the age group that I'm dealing with has, has shifted quite a bit. Um, so the 
association, you know, American Association of Feline Practitioners do have um, very, very good, you know, guidelines about age, um, care for the senior cat and so on. So there's senior and geriatric would be some of the categories or names that people use. Um, geriatric is really, to me, a, a term that describes a very frail cat. That's what we refer to it in a human, so it's someone who's frail. Senior is more, you know, they've reached a certain age where we know certain things are more likely, you know, to happen. And the number one would be, you know, kidney disease or, you know, failing kidneys, hyperthyroidism and so on. So although there are like specific numbers, um, you know, over the age of 12, we do know from anesthesia studies that over the age of 12, there is, you know, a, a sort of a, a slightly higher risk of, you know, anesthesia just because of aging changes. Um, but not every cat, you know, is geriatric at age 15. There's some, you know, cats that are 15 that I wouldn't classify as geriatric because they're still quite robust and doing well. And then there's, you know, some 14 or 13 year old cats that are very frail. And I would classify them as like a, an older person who's aged more quickly than the general population. So that's kind of a roundabout answer, but I don't think just an actual number. Um, you know, you can look up charts and it said a 15 year old cat is like a 76 year old person. Um, and we know we have he healthy 76 year old humans and the same goes for cats, I think. But definitely we know, you know, you know at, at about age 10 is, uh, is where the sudden increase in OA, osteoarthritis happens but we have to now realize that that is also a disease of younger cats. But I would say that 10 to 12 is where, a, you know, sort of a lot of things start happening in cats. So Dr. Robertson, in your opinion, if cat owners were looking to be proactive and wanted to make sure that they were meeting their cat's emotional, physiologic, metabolic needs, how frequently should they be taking their cats to the veterinarian when their kitties reach that senior age level, you know, some there's this myth out there that you know I'm going to bring my cat to the vet when I see a symptom, which is not a, a good uh, a good no. plan at all. And so no. <laughs> we're trying desperately uh, to help pet parents begin thinking proactively about intentionally creating wellness through great lifestyle decisions, including partnering with your veterinarian on a consistent basis to prevent disease from occurring. What would your recommendations be? for senior cats in, in terms of frequency of visits? So, so, I mean, ideally, what we would be looking at is, you know, every six months, twice a year, if, if possible. And then obviously, depending on what was found, um, maybe, you know, clearly might have to be more than that. But you're absolutely right, you know, owners, you know, because like weight loss can be very, you know, gradual and insidious, and it doesn't look obvious to them, and they may not, not weigh their cat Obviously, I don't think many owners frequently weigh their cat. Um, so that would be, you know, just even losing, you know, eight, you know, lose half a pound is really significant in a cat. And the owner may not watch that, you know, see that because it's very gradual. So I would say that one of the things I think that we need to really start thinking about is promoting, you know, senior clinics. I mean, that are specially geared towards the senior pet. And we're talking about cats. And, you know, sometimes they can be, you know, a lot of the screening and the, 
education can be done by you know trained tech nurses and technicians that the cat goes to a scene for a senior visit and it may not necessarily end up with a veterinary you know interaction but i think that's one trend that they're starting to do in the united kingdom they have um, senior clinics that cats can go and visit and of course the cost is a little bit different and then obviously if something's picked up then they see the doctor um but i think that the weight issue is really important because you know once they start losing their you know their lean body mass which we know just precipitously drops off and then you know they become sarcopenic and all the issues with that um so that would be the ideal and i think if we can get people to understand that we can make that stress that what used to be stressful visit with using the gabapentin you know getting them used to their carrier using the pheromones and then you know the way we handle them in the clinic once they realize it's not a dreaded visit i think we would see more cats and as always prevention is better than cure and usually much cheaper as well it's interesting you you mentioned um, kind of that 10 11 12 um, there are studies to show in cats that possibly maybe 30, 40% um, reduction of absorption of specific nutrients in the diet start to occur about that age, especially mm -hmm. protein and potentially fat as well. And I, and I agree with you, you know, cats, sometimes even your overweight cats, they'll maintain that, that fat mass. So they still look kind of big and fluffy and to the owner, but it's really when you palpate muscle or do like the muscle condition scoring that we as veterinarians should be doing, they are losing muscle mass and muscle weighs more than fat. So there can be dramatic weight shifts. Um, to the point, I mean, as a nutritionist, I seldom, even in very, very heavy cats, when they get to that senior mark or uh, I, very, very seldom do any hard, hard weight loss programs at that point in time because I, I think, you know, that is a time of a lot of changes that are going on in our patients and our kitty cats. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right because it's not just their weight, it's the change in body composition that's happening. And so this, you know, when you see the studies looking at, you know, the dramatic loss in lean muscle mass in cats, you know, precipitously, so like with older people with sarcopenia, the lead, you know, losing. For me, you know, who's been involved in anesthesia for so long, this change in, um, you know, their actual central volume, so the blood volume actually changes, the, you know, muscle mass goes down, there's more percentage of fat, even if they're, um, you know, plump cats, everything is the, you know, the composition of the body changes. Right. And then that changes dramatically how, you know, a lot of drugs work. And that's why a lot of cats get in trouble when they're anesthetized, you know, when they're older, because people haven't really thought about these changes in body composition. So I think that's really important. And I think I just read a report recently that where, you know, they went in and looked at a lot of clinic records and, you know, most visits, a body condition score is noted. It wasn't as many as I thought it should be but the number of people not doing muscle condition score was, I mean, it was less than 20% were recording muscle condition scores. And that's, well, you're as a nutritionist, and I'm not a nutritionist, but working with the geriatric population now, it's so important to do both. Like the actual physical weight, 
but then the condition scoring and then their actual muscle um, score. So yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with that. And and muscle condition scoring, I, you know, there's some good sites that, you know, and I try to teach owners even how to feel over just even the spinous mm -hmm. processes. I think that's an easy area for the owners to appreciate muscle loss. Um, you know, in dogs, sometimes it's easier with the, you know, a shorter coat in cats, their coats, you really have to put your hands on, but that's a good area to start. Yeah, I think it's good. I think um, the World um, Small Animal Veterinary Association yes. in their nutrition in, in their nutrition guidelines, I thought some of the um, you know downloads that you can get there of how to do it and print off were very were were very well explained. But yeah. I, I I think we need to do more um, looking at body composition rather than just what they weigh. So I have a question for you because you're so well versed with pain management. There's this very frustrating. Um, viewpoint, I think a lot of conventional veterinarians uh, believe that because many vets are afraid of cats and pain, pain management or using drugs in older kitties, that we're not managing pain as effectively as we should be, number one. But also, my perspective is that we're not instituting drug-free options early enough to begin to really slow down the degenerative process. So I'd like to get your thoughts as to um, some of the drugs, of course, are necessary, and we'll thank before them, but way before we institute drug prot protocols, what are some non-drug options that cat parents could begin thinking about if they have an older kitty moving into discomfort or pain? So I think there's um, little doubt now that everybody agrees that the um, you know, specific joint diets, so there is one, Dr. Duncan Lascelles published a study um, actually several years ago now, and these were cats that already, you know, were in trouble, like they had degenerative joint disease, and they were, they compared a, a specific um, joint diet, which is, you know, had glucosamine, the right, you know, formulation of the correct fatty acids, um, and so on, and, you know, chondroitin, and I think it had greenlit muscle in it, in the extracts, compared to a, to a, you know, controlled diet, and that was the only intervention these cats had. And the um, joint specific diet with all the supplements actually um, you know, did improve activity and you know, some of the behavioral markers that they were looking at. So I think there's no, that was after you know, they had been diagnosed. So I think you know, essential fatty acids are really important, A, for cognitive function, which again is another issue in these older cats, the, you know, what, what, yellowing cat at night. So I think, um, you know, the, the fish oils for um, joints and those obviously for cognitive issues is a huge area of, you know, getting, you know, what's the right quality because obviously these are not drugs. So quality control, as you know, as a nutritionist is um, an issue. And then the right dose because the dose is not the same as dogs. Um, and then, you know, when should we have them on these for life or just wait till they're in trouble and mine my feeling would be that you know sooner rather than later like again prevention rather than um you know treatment so i think it, there's no doubt that some of the chondroitins and the fish oils are going to be very very important in um maybe maybe making this aging process um, slower or pushing it, you know, making it slow down a lot or be very helpful. 
So, so Donna, I have a question for you as a nutritionist. Of course, we AFCO doesn't recognize a senior geriatric category in terms of uh, nutrient profiles. So you have spent kind of your career customizing diets to tailor around some of these conditions that aren't necessarily being acknowledged by nutrient profiles across the board of pet foods, but you can customize that. So what are some what are some ways that you alter the diet of an aging senior geriatric cat to help address some of these aging-related issues? Well, actually what Dr. Robertson pointed out is very, very important. The um, One of the things I always do is the ratios of what we call the omega-6 fatty acids to the omega-3 fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Cats need both sixes and threes, but that ratio um, in most of the commercial diets, is, most of those diets are very high in omega-6s, and omega-6s tend to be very pro-inflammatory, and inflammation is part of osteoarthritis, um, plays a role in cognition, also a role in probably our kidney disease and progression of kidney disease in cats. So the diets that I formulate, I try to get our omega-3s in there with the fish oils. I aim for ratios of two to one or even one to one in diets, either by supplementing the diet that the cat is currently on with more omega-3s to to get that ratio where I want, or if it's a homemade diet, I'm always looking at that ratio. I also think, I agree with you, I think the glucosamine chondroitin, I know a lot of the studies go back and forth, whether it helps, I think it's a more of a long-term picture for that. Um, and also Perna, the, the green sea lip muscle, mm -hmm. that's a source of chondroitin, but it also may be bringing in another type of fatty acid that has kind of anti or anti-inflammatory or modulating inflammatory effects. So those are all things that we can put into diet. Also, I think um, in cats, if their if they're, uh, kidney is, uh, situation is stable, I do like to have, you know, obviously very high quality protein and enough protein to maintain that lean muscle mass. So always a question in my mind, surely we know part of aging um, involves losing muscle, which is that sarcopenia or losing of muscle. But, you know, you also wonder, are we giving them enough and it's not really protein that the cats need, it's the amino acids. So if we can provide those amino acid building blocks in the highest quality possible in their diet to maintain muscle mass so the muscle structures around those joints that are getting older can function better. Yeah. So those are the things I'm thinking about with my aging cats as far as diet. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. One question, Dr. Robertson, uh, I'm sure you get this all the time now, but I have to ask because you're so well-versed with pain management. CBD and kitties, experience with that? <laughs> like, dislike, pro, con, not enough information. What are your thoughts? So um, if, if anyone listened in, I think there was a huge listening into the AVMA webcast that they did like two weeks ago. Uh, in theory, we're not supposed to talk about it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, I mean, but, but this is, I, I guess, what I just actually heard, because I follow, um, I'll be honest, I follow a lot of the human research um, on CBD treatment, and obviously the animal research is coming out, and there is a paper that's just been recently published on CBD and the dose that's appropriate for dogs with OA, and that is in a peer-reviewed journal. And um, I what, I what I heard is that in California just recently, 
they have changed the regulations to allow um, veterinarians in California to discuss um, cannabinoids with owners because we're in theory we can suggest, discuss, or certainly prescribe. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think it's ideal that we're you know sort of like we're zipped on that whole right. area because then owners just go off on their own yes. and go to the internet and get stuff. Whereas in theory, veterinarians would be the best people to help them. Yes. So I think we're in a really, you know, it's a catch-22 at the moment. California looks like they've made it, you know, okay. Veterinarians won't get in trouble talking about it now. Um, but I think we're right in that middle of where we need to, like, get good research, and we are getting that in dogs. Um, you know, it's not going to be the cure-all for everything, but it's got its place mm -hmm. for, you know, we certainly know in human medicine, and we... Um, I don't know why it would, it's going to be any different for dogs and cats. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. But the, re the research has been, the problem is that the research has been hampered by the fact that any researcher wanting to do the research, because it's still scheduled as a right. schedule one drug, so that's along with you know heroin and everything, um, to actually get the research license and the ability to conduct the research has been very problematic for people. Right. Um, so, one one last thought about pain management um, when it comes to weight. Uh, and talk to me about, I know, uh, Dr. Donna, you're not a big fan of dieting geriatric kitties. I certainly understand why. Um, what's the importance or how do you uh, help overweight kitties? Um, how, what's your approach, Dr. Robertson, to, to the obesity epidemic occurring in kitties? I mean, do you have, other than prevention, when, yeah. when you're going to, uh, this, this whole obesity issue is massive and it's a difficult topic to talk about and to help cat owners work through. No, I think it's a huge issue when you look at the numbers and then you look at the graph of, you know, the number of, you know, obese cats that are, you know, recorded going up and up and up. And uh, we've already touched on it, but the issue is I think nobody has really, you know, real or I don't think people have been looking um, close enough, like, you know, fat is a pro-inflammatory, I mean, it's just like a pro-inflammatory factory in the body. And, you know, that's the problem. Everyone thinks, well, it's just fat, but no, fat is like, you know, all these pro-inflammatory mediators are coming from the fat, which we now, you know, truly believe are not good, you know, might it's not just the, the cats are overweight and putting um, excess you know, stress on the joints, it's actually this higher level of circulating pro-inflammatory you know, um, soup that they have. That you know, kidney disease in cats is really different from kidney disease in dogs. And a lot of cats, something like 68% you know, of cats that are diagnosed with osteoarthritis also have kidney disease. So are the two, is there a, a link, you know, is it inflammatory? But certainly the fact that they've been overweight for their, you know, their whole life, I'm sure has, is not, is, well, it's never a good thing. But I think we haven't focused a lot on this source of inflammatory products is coming from fat. So yes, we would like to have the kitten visit is where we start with that problem. But we have the cats that are, you know, it's already happened, we're done, what are we going to do? You know, I, I agree that um, when they're senior geriatric, um, that's a tough one because they need the high quality digestible 
protein for the, you know, maintaining muscle mass. So it gets to be quite tricky. So I think some of it is going to be diet, somewhat restriction. And I know it's very, very hard, unlike dogs, you know, to increase um, activity out, you know, activity levels in cats. But if the owner is willing, then I think there are ways it can be done, but they really need to be willing. So cats were never meant to eat once or twice a day. That was never their lifestyle. Um, you know, they were meant to be hunters and, you know, hyper carnivores. So, I mean, I do it with my own cats. So their ration is hidden in Kongs all around the house. Now, obviously if they're mobility impaired, that's not going to be on a high place. And we can talk about that, but I think they need to be fed um, less, let, you know, more frequently in small amounts during the day, I think. And I think a lot of these new feeders, when you have multi-cat households, that's another nightmare. You know, the feeders that actually identify each cat so you know what ration they're getting and they have to work a little bit for their food. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I started using lots of food puzzles and one of my cats is overweight and it worked great on him because he just couldn't be bothered working for the food. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, good for you. So actually, you know, his ration was in there and he's like, oh, it's too much work, you know. And so he self, he self um, you know, and it worked. But I think the, the um, puzzles are good for cognitive um, and, and enrichment and it takes a lot of time. So then they're engaged for more. So I really think food puzzles, you know, hiding food in places all over, you know, around the house, maybe the, the recognizable feeders, the timed feeders. I mean, I think all of these things are, if owners are willing to do it, are very, very good. And, you know, and then just interacting with your cat, you know, an old cat will still, you know, you might have to get a new toy or a new game every, you know, every two weeks, but they will do, you know, they will do things um, to increase their output, I think, their energy output, although it needs a bit of coaxing. And, and my own cats that, um, you know, I have to admit, I'm embarrassed to say I've had an overweight cat that had degenerative joint disease and I was lucky enough, I mean, I actually took him in for, you know, treadmill sessions at the um, rehab center. Go ahead. And believe it or not, that yeah. was underwater. Yep. It went well. doesn't always go well, but <laughs> land tre and treadmill, you know, is these are sorts of things that, you know, can be applicable. You know, people tell me that there's no way you're going to stick acupuncture needles in a cat. And I'm like, well, that's not true. Some of them really like it. We can attest to that. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. I have a lot of cats just fall asleep. Yeah. You know, you can see that whole endorphin, serotonin, and they're asleep before the treatment's yeah. over. So this entire week, Dr. Robertson, we're focusing on research uh, and the fact that that can we, the organization that Don and I uh, both co-founded, we're focusing on university-based, unbiased research that we can share with the world to help pet parents take better care of the animals in their home. When it comes to cats, can you, first of all, it feels like there's such a deficiency in, in cat research compared to dogs. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it from your perspective, what are some of the areas that we most need to be looking at to improve cat quality of life when it comes to research or, or learning more so we can do better? So I think, you know, there's been so many longevity studies done in dogs 
in huge detail um, and they're not as detailed or as common in cats. Um, there is actually, um, and I'm, I don't want to say the wrong university, but it's in the UK that um, just they, they've taken on PhD students and they are doing um, longevity. Um, so they're looking at these cats in clinical environment, you know, from a young age. And the, the whole project is, you know, going to span 10 years. So it's going to take a while. But looking at, um, you know, aging in cats, and that's a, a big project that's going on. And I would have to, it could be that it's not LinkedIn University. It might be Liverpool, but I'd have to look it up. And I, because I know a friend who applied for one of the positions. Um, so I think the longevity studies and looking at, the way we have in dogs. Um, I, I think there's um, some amazing work coming out on degenerative joint disease from the group at um, North Carolina that's headed up by Duncan LaSalle's. Um, and I think, and looking at new ways of, of approaching that disease in cats and looking at it as a cat specific disease, not, you know, as an offshoot of like it happens in dogs as well. Um, I think that's really important. And the group at Montreal, I think they're also doing some very, very good work with um, joint disease in, in cats. But the other thing is that we also then need, um, if some of these diseases are, are going to be treated, um, you know, pharmacologically, when you are looking for a drug for cats, you know, the key thing is looking at how it's metabolized before you even go down that road, you know, because of the fact that they can't you want to do so for example you know um carprofen has turned out to be a you know fantastic non-steroidal for long-term use in dogs completely inappropriate for cats because of the pharmacokinetics so i think um choosing the right pharmacokinetic profile before you even go down that road looking for a drug so we're looking for drugs that are you know oxidative pathways so we don't run into toxicity problems and then the other thing that I would like to see, and we've seen very little of it, um, Dr. Quimby is doing some, um, uh, Trepanier, I think, is doing a little bit of work, is how do we adjust chronic dosing levels based on the stage of kidney disease that they have? You know, because we say, well, you know, a cat has heart disease or it has this disease, or, and they go on a certain drug, you know, Q, whatever, same dose for whatever. But we know in humans that you have to adjust either the dose or the dosing interval based on that person's um, kidney function. And we have data on one drug in cats, and that's gabapentin. We know how we have a little bit of data how to adjust that. But as far as I know, we don't have much information. And I think that's going to be huge. Um, how can we adjust chronic medication in cats based on their kidney and liver function? We have a lot of work to do when it comes to supporting yes, our feline friends. We have a <laughs> lot of work. <laughs> we certainly do. You know, it's interesting you mention, um, you know, the osteoarthritis um, longevity studies and, um, you know, the, the kidney issue and the whole concept of, of um, you know, our overweight cats and fat being almost like a, almost like a tumor, you know, a tumor secreting mm -hmm chemistry, this bad chemistry. And, and one of the things that fascinates me is I, I think it's a parallel to what we know in humans as metabolic syndrome, you know, metabolic yeah. syndrome where that fat mass is responsible for being so pro-inflammatory, you know, diabetes, hypertension, 
um, and you know, joint disease, cardiovascular things. I think our cats actually have their own, cats and dogs have their own form of metabolic syndrome, which does involve that kind of pro-inflammatory state of that you know, fat mass or that fatty tumor. And I think we really need to connect those dots because when we start connecting those dots, I think that's gonna go back to us understanding how to feed our cats better um, so that they don't get overweight and they can maintain lean body mass longer and they're not in this pro-inflammatory state that drives them. You know, it just fascinates me Actually, you're right. Osteoarthritis in a cat isn't like a dog. It's more rheumatoid. It's a hotter or more acute, hotter inflammatory state than dogs. And their kidney disease is different too. Their diabetes is type two, more like humans. So it's just interesting. And um, I think, you know, for me, I guess, you know, one of the things I think we need to start understanding is how to be proactively and feeding them better and knowing what to feed them and how to feed them better um, so that we can, we can see these cats live longer and have better quality of life. Yeah, no, yeah totally agree because, I mean, I think there, there is some work going on, you know, looking at, you know, uh, the urinary markers of cytokines and inflammation, you know, so it would be a very non-invasive, you know, you know, we've come up with, you know, better SDMA for screening for kidney disease. So now there might be ways of screening for inflammatory disease. But the other thing you've mentioned, all the things that, you know, revolve around inflammation, but when an uh, overweight person, and so that would then, you know, translate to an overweight cat, has a surgical procedure, the inflammatory response from surgery, which we know an incision and all the rest of it is quite hot, but the, um, the inflammatory response in obese um, animals or people is much greater. So then that's why they have harder time recovering. It's not just that they're obese, it's like they have a massive inflammatory response to, to trauma or surgery. And then, you know, you can just imagine the whole pathway from that. So, you know, you can sometimes even without research tell that, you know, the, the, the lean cats bounce back quicker. And I'm sure it's a lot to do with that whole same issue in humans, that there's less of an inflammatory response to trauma or surgery. Wow. Well, so my that's takeaway, what, that's what I think. yeah, my takeaway is I think we should be raising money to do a corollary study between metabolic syndrome in people and cats. Yes. <laughs> probably, probably you know, you know, I would say cats are almost, you know, closer as a human model for a lot of things. And, you know, they're always looking for, you know, that's the way that a lot of the, you know, people get their funding from NIH is if there's, if this research would be of benefit to humans. So things like, you know, osteosarcoma, is, you know, and actually osteoarthritis now, because it's a good model and it's not a rodent model, which they know doesn't translate well, I think there's quite a, a, a good prospect of getting good funding because cats and dogs are actually better models for human disease than any rodent model that has gone before. Yeah. And they already have the disease and, you know, so we, we can help them as well. Well, this is insightful, inspiring, and helpful. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and provide this uh, great information uh, to all of our listeners, readers, and people that are looking to provide better care for their kitties. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, if you get me starting on cats, it's, there's almost no stopping me. So <laughs> it was nice to have two other people that felt the same and the, obviously the listeners um, with, their, with their kitties. Yeah. Thank you. It's 
Yes, it's great. It's, it's always good to be among the crazy cat people, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. that's what they call us. It is. Someone, and someone I'm, has And I'm not ashamed of that. Exactly. I'm not either. I'm exactly. not either. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Okay. Yeah, thank you for inviting me um, to join you.